All right. Good morning, Doug. I can tell by the painting behind you that you are in your home in Buenos Aires. So welcome to the Southern Cone. Well, it's good to be here, although I've got to say more than ever, I hate the mob scenes that uh, airports have come to represent. They're like uh, they're like bus stations used to be, but without the adventure that bus stations could used to be able to supply. Um, you know, it's it, it's terrible. They're they're crowds and and they're degrading, having to go through the TSA drill, and I just hate it, frankly. And the quality of the flights, although I've got to say, American Airlines uh, from from DFW down to uh, Buenos Aires, the flight itself wasn't bad, but generally experience the generally speaking, the whole experience of flying has been degraded over the years. I think. But maybe wow. I'm just jaded because I've got, I don't know how many millions of air miles at this point. So, Well, it definitely becomes a drag over time. But I think that the the experience since, I mean, in the last, well, just since COVID has gotten dramatically worse. Whereas, you know, the uh, the, the flight crew, which are not, you know, you can't call them uh, uh, stewardesses, then it changed to flight attendants. Now they're members of the flight crew that have other titles. And there are, and instead of being customer service oriented by default, there are, they are enforcers of policy by default. So that basic switch up, regardless of everything else, changes the dynamics for the worse. It's happened throughout society where your uh, where your good looking, friendly airline stewardess has been transformed into Ilsa, she wolf of the SS, who we've discussed before in the past. Exactly. A real yeah. person, incidentally. Yeah. Okay. So, so you're you're in Buenos Aires. You have yeah. some meetings in the next coming days with uh, locals, and you'll be able to give us a sense of boots on the ground in the next next time we talk, probably. Yeah, I think so. I'm going to a uh, a group I belong to. It's a hundred year old group that um, has eight Brits, eight Americans, and eight Argentines, and everybody uh, one person every month gives a paper on something that he knows about. And the others listen, then we have a dinner, and it's very good like So I'm kind of exclusive. And then tomorrow, I'm going to go to another group, which coincidentally is also about 100 years old, where uh, it's just for Americans living in Buenos Aires who get together and have lunch and discuss current affairs. And we have all kinds. We've got left-wing types, right-wing types. Mm -hmm. And as a few libertarian Americans have come down to Buenos Aires, I've been able to inject them into the group too. So anyway, I guess I'll do that tomorrow. Good. Well, we'll get an update on what, what the real vibe is. From what I've heard from people there, there's a some optimism about Millet, you, you know, among even people that didn't necessarily support him. Well, I think so. Uh, I talked to, to my driver that took me in from uh, Izeza to... Um, to uh, downtown BA, where I am now. And uh, as we talked, it turned out that he was on the borderline, but yeah, he was favorable towards Malay. I mean, change is traumatic, even if it's change from living in a, a fire. You can still be afraid of jumping into the fire frying pan, put it that way. Mm -hmm. And then I was talking with my maid and uh, her Spanish sped up a lot, and I lost her 
but it had something to do with the war that she didn't like about Malay. Uh, and I go, he doesn't like, he's not in a position to start a war. I mean, the Argent Argentina <laughs> doesn't have an army. It doesn't have a Navy. I mean, it's, that was the good thing about the Falklands War. They pretty much dropped all that stuff by the wayside. So I, I'm going to have to find out more about mm. her misgivings about Malay, something to do with the war. Maybe it's because he's very pro-Israel and she's afraid that they're going to draft Argentines to go over and stick their heads in the meat grinder. I don't know. Yeah, it's hard to imagine. Out. Hard to yeah. imagine who would do that. Okay. Anyway, these are just initial random impressions that are apropos of really nothing. <laughs> okay. All right. So what's the what's what's today according to the Encyclopedia Britannica? Anything useful we can pull from that? Well, December sixth. What what went on historically today? Uh, interesting to observe that today is Stalin's birthday. Uh, he was born in 1878, so it's nothing to celebrate. Uh, I, I think it would have been better if uh, they celebrated or acknowledged his death day, uh, which came in 1953, and was rather uh, uh, kind of disgusting. Anyway, this is very interesting. It's that, uh, you know, you have this world-class, world-class psychopathic criminal and everybody was afraid of him. Even Beria, the head of his secret police, who was a totally ruthless cutthroat in charge of the uh, KGB when, when it was a very unmellow organization, not that it's mellow today. But uh, you ask yourself, why did nobody kill him? You know, frankly, I mean, because they were all being, all the people around him were being bumped off slowly, one by one, and then their very existence excised from the history books, and they were cut out of pictures where they were with Stalin and so forth. So you ask yourself, why did nobody kill Stalin? I mean, you know, it's, well, fear, I, I, hmm. I guess. So anyway, that's a good question. Horrible, horrible dictator that nobody loved. I mean, I mean, some people actually loved Hitler and, and, and bought all the stuff that he was selling. But, you know, the one of the big differences between uh, Nazi Germany and Stalinist uh, Soviet Union was that uh, foreign diplomats uh, were edgy and a little bit afraid about going to Russia in those days. They thought it maybe it'd be a one-way trip, but nobody was really afraid with the Germans. They were kind of civilized, notwithstanding the many problems mm. they obviously had. But um, why didn't anybody kill Stalin? Everybody talks about why didn't, why didn't somebody kill Hitler as a baby? And would you be justified in killing Hitler as a baby before? Yes, I know, you know, these high school kid arguments. But uh, why didn't anybody, in fact, kill Stalin? Because they all realized that their lives were in danger. Well, there were attempts on Hitler, at least, right? There were. Yes, there were several attempts. In addition to Operation Valkyrie, there at, at the end, where the bomb went off uh, in East Prussia during the war. Yeah, there were previous attempts, but. Um, but there weren't any known was... attempts on on Stalin at all. Yes. Really? Yeah. Uh, there, there is an interesting attempt 
on the part of uh, Joseph Tito, who was the uh, dictator of Yugoslavia in those days. And uh, Tito, who was, you know, wanted to go his own way and didn't want to be a uh, Soviet satellite. Uh, and Stalin didn't like that. So, um, you know, he tried to assassinate him a number of times and Tito figured out that it was Stalin trying to kill him. So he got a message to Stalin and I forget the nature of it. I researched this once in the past because it was so interesting. But anyway, he got a note to Stalin and uh, it was basically, uh, stop sending people to try to kill me or I'll send somebody to kill you and he'll succeed. And apparently that worked. Wow. Was Tito the guy who built all of those bunkers in Albania or was that someone else? No, that was somebody different. That was somebody, you know, on a scale of awfulness, you know, with Stalin up there at around 10 with Paul Pot and other Mao and, and, and for that matter, Hitler, although Hitler ruled out the Jews and, and that, I mean, otherwise, he wasn't as awful as the other people, I don't think. But uh, you can't say that. Uh, <laughs> you can't. <laughs> you're not allowed to say that. Who was that absolutely horrible person that ruled Albania from World War and World War II to, um, oh, I think around 1990-something, when the place was overturned and filled the place with bunkers? What the hell was that his name? Enver Hoxha? Enver Hoxha, yes. And it was the most isolated country in the world. I mean, it was on a level with North Korea. Hmm. So, yeah, you get all the, these horrible people. The bunker thing when we visited there really stood out. It was amazing. These things were everywhere. It was, I mean, I don't know how many tons of concrete must have been poured for those many thousands of bunkers that seem like they're in the middle of nowhere, but everywhere. Yeah, and I'm wondering, what are they going to do with all those bunkers? It's going to be expensive to dig up all that concrete. Or will they just stay there forever? Because it's... I think maybe when when there's the next, uh, you know, uh, comet that strikes Earth and civilization maybe reemerges again, there'll be like layers, there'll be archaeologists will be digging through and finding a series of bunkers, wondering how, and, how and these maybe things... Albanians will be among the relatively few people that survive because of the foresight of Comrade Hoxha. That's a good point. That's a good yeah, point. What know, made him so, what, he was as bad, you say, as uh, Stalin? I mean, he was like really oppressive. He, he, was, he was like, he was like on a level with, um, with uh, the Kims in ah, North okay. Korea, you know, making made it a completely isolated police state mm. where no information went in and no information went out. That type of thing. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah this is, there's there's a uh, an average of five point seven bunkers for every square kilometer. Wow, that's a lot. Wow. That's, I don't know how many people there are per square kilometer in, in Albania, but you could put more than one person in a bunker. So everybody would have his bunker, I guess. That's shocking. Yeah, it is shocking. I mean, the stupidity of these people, but you don't get the best and brightest going into government. You get the, <laughs> this... the most psychopathic and the worst and perfect illustration, I think. Anyway. Yeah, this is self-evidently true if you look around the world, I think. But 
good riddance on Stalin, um, who died, uh, let's see, it was March of uh, 1953. So, you know, next March, we'll check and see if his death is commemorated the way his birthday is. And the other guy, another guy, I should say, that I uh, that uh, died today, and I wrote this down. I'm having trouble reading my own writing in addition to the fact it's a very unusual name. There's a guy named Shinra Ambedkar, uh, who is an Indian. Um, he died in 1956. Nobody's ever heard of him, of course. I'd never heard of him. Uh, it's that um, he was the um, an early leader of the Dalit movement in India. And Dalit is a new word, a polite word for untouchable. So there are tens of millions of uh, so-called untouchables in India, their caste system. These are people that you, you used to not even be able to touch because they were so on the bottom of society. And um, he changed the name from calling them untouchables in English to calling them Dalits. I guess they still exist. But the caste system, I guess, is breaking up in India today slowly. Although I can't I can't say that from firsthand observation. And it's hard to see how anything will change radically in a place like India anyway. Well, I follow I follow uh, Giant Pandari's Twitter, and uh he certainly doesn't make it look like they're moving toward a greater civilization. Let's put it that way. Yeah, people should actually read Giant's stuff. He, and when he gives a speech about how backward India is, it's uh, it's actually very funny. So, um, so, he, he's, so not, he's not intending to be funny, though, I don't think, when he's saying it. He's just so ruthless. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, the truth is often funny. I mean, the best comedians, of course, are the ones that are telling the truth, like court justices in medieval times. And... Uh, I was on a Zoom call, uh, I guess it was yesterday, with a bunch of fund managers. And towards the end of the uh, conversation, we were talking about uh, Islam uh, became a subject. And um, uh, all these guys uh, are uh, pretty familiar with the tenets of it. A lot of, them, a lot of the guys are ex-military guys that are fund managers. It's an interesting group generally speaking. And one of them pointed out that uh, soon, the largest Muslim country in the world uh, will not be Indonesia or Pakistan, or I guess those are the two contenders today for largest Muslim country, it will be India. And this is kind of interesting because um, after World War II, uh, the British divided India into India and Pakistan, according to religious grounds. But now, with a giant number of Muslims in the, on, in India, along the Pakistani border primarily, it's probably a time bomb waiting to go off because the Hindus are becoming you know, very nationalistic about being Hindus. And of course, the, the Muslims react to that. So civil war coming in India uh, or another secession, who knows, but probably, I think, in the cards. Uh, it makes, I mean, it 
probably would make natural sense for them to secede right? if they have fundamentally different cultures different people which, i mean I, I hate the I, I don't really love the idea of the uh you know the european powers uh carving up a map the way they've done you know sort of uh generally because a lot of times they did it, it seems that without regard to uh the natural division of peoples but it seems like what they did between pakistan and india made basic sense right yeah yeah it does make basic sense of course you know you got to look at the bright side and the dark side now the pakistanis have nuclear weapons and at some point it's not out of the question that the indians uh, or the hindus and the muslims will use them against each other because they hate each other they apparently they really do hate each other so and that kind of leads to the question of colonialism and anti-colonialism and neo-colonialism. These are all words that have become current. I mean, it's one more thing that's bubbled up from the cesspool of wokeness today. And I've got to say, I'm not a fan of colonialism because if I lived in a country and foreigners came and invaded, had superior technology and then ruled over us, and I mean, who'd like that? On the other hand, uh, it was a mistake that the West made, probably, colonializing, colonizing everywhere. But these people really ought to be thankful for it because they'd still be, you know, eating worms and grubbing for roots and berries if the West had not imposed itself on them. But on the other hand, you know, if I was a local, I certainly wouldn't want foreigners coming in and telling me what to do, even if they brought magic juju with them, which they mm -hmm. did. <laughs> exactly. Well, I'm reading in for homeschool for my daughter. We're uh, uh, reading uh, the Uncle Eric books, um, uh, 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 Rick Mayberry's books mm -hmm. on, you know, World War One and World War Two, and we're uh, basically almost done with the World War One one now. And you know, he talks about the basically the ten causes of war, and one of them was, you know, the uh, the he called it Anglo-Saxonism, and he also called it a slash white man's burden. That idea, you know, that you know they, they had some duty to civilize the peoples of the world, and how that got you know the Western world into all kinds of quagmires, and you know that were didn't work out for the most part. No, it it didn't. It goes back to that old saying: "No good deed goes unpublished, uh, un, unpunished." Not that it, not that it was necessarily a good deed. But, uh, you know, like Blacks in the U.S., many of them whine and complain about being here in the U.S., but frankly, they they won the, the jackpot when their ancestors were stolen from Africa and enslaved, because if they were still in Africa, I mean, they'd have nothing. They'd, they'd be, I mean, the life of the average African is not too good. The life of even a, a black living in the ghetto is much, much, much better than almost any African today. So, well, we can see it in the in the uh, migration uh, results we see right now with the uh, people Africans moving in mass to Europe and apparently through the southern border in the U.S. as well. Yes, and and there are approximately zero American blacks that actually go back to Africa. So, I mean, the reality speaks for itself.
as as it were. Uh, you know, and uh, of course, we can talk about Africa another time. I, I'm of the opinion that at some point, because as the West financially degrades and explodes, which is going to happen, foreign aid to Africa is going to stop. And the population boom in Africa will also stop and go into reverse because mm. Africa is a, just a, it, it's, it's a welfare recipient at this point. Mm. I mean, I've, I've said before that, that uh, the Africans should be eternally grateful to the Europeans if when de Gama was rounding the Cape of Good Hope, he'd thrown out a wheel because they didn't have a wheel. But that wouldn't have done any good because he would have had to have thrown out an instruction book too. But they couldn't read. So, you know, it was a mixed bag, the Europeans uh, conquering Africa. Can't yeah. wait to see how it works out, but we won't know for 100 years. No. You know, before we before we move off the Indian topic, I think it's something in the news that relates to that is uh, that Last week, a Paraguayan official resigned after signing an agreement with a fictional country. And this country was um, essentially made up by this by this guru, by this Indian guru who apparently is on the run from the uh, from the Indian government. Uh, and he created a country. What is the name of that country? Uh, some fictional country that's allegedly off the coast of Ecuador, but he calls it a cosmic nation. So I don't allegedly it's an island but i'm not sure if it's actually anything other than something conjured in his mind anyway this official signed and in uh, the agriculture department signed an agreement with this fictitious country it was found out that it was a fictitious country and he had to resign in shame what do you think of that whole situation well i mean that's what do you expect this shows that most people uh have absolutely no knowledge of the geography. And of course, Paraguay is going to be worse than most because it's the most isolated, always has been, and still is, although not nearly as bad as it used to be, uh, the most isolated and like, backward country in South America. So that's, um, but you've got to hand it to somebody like this Indian. I, I, I'm sure he's whacked out and loony, but the boldness of stepping into a country and introducing yourself as what the president or prime minister of some fictional country. And to think that, you know, these high Paraguayan government officials didn't even, well, first is Google them and find out if the country exists. You know, it's but I'm I'm all for fictional and newly founded countries. I'm all for it. I mean, you had uh Sealand founded by Prince Roy Bates, who I spent the day with in England, and it still kind of exists. It's a uh, a radar tower in the English Channel, mm. and uh, Lieberland, which is turning into maybe a real country in the mm -hmm. island in the Danube River between Serbia and Croatia. So I'm all for this type of thing. Like like Mao said, as long as we're talking about dictators, uh, let a thousand flowers bloom. Yeah, so I, I think, think it's, it's it's great free entertainment at, at worst. Cosmic country, though. It's fantastic. It, so allegedly, it was, they say it will reportedly be established on a private island off the coast of Ecuador, purchased by some of his wealthy uh, devotees. 
And he said, applications are open for those who want to apply for citizenship and a passport, which allows for free entry in all 11 dimensions and 14 locus. Hmm. That sounds that sounds better than 192 countries. Yeah. yeah. Oh, for it. Yeah. And so maybe I'll get one of those passports. Keep yeah. it in mind. Well, you have you to be mean, Hindu. You have to be Hindu to apply. Oh, well, that's too bad. Oh, well. Uh, maybe somebody will find a different kind of country like that that I can, that I can join. But uh, yeah, well, uh, may, may Brahma bless him. Uh, I guess it's Brahma. Or is it, maybe it's Shiva? Or who's the third big god? Brahma, it's Shiva, the, and Kali. Is it Kali? Oh, Kali. Maybe it is. Yeah. What's the what's the elephant one? Oh, that's Ganesh. Ganesh. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Hard to keep track. It, it really is. Well, it's impossible, probably. I think they've got many hundreds of of uh, of gods. Hmm. Yeah. Well, good luck to him. Yeah, but I think that's an interesting interesting tidbit, and you know, maybe we'll hear further reports on his progress. And uh, I wish I wish him well, and hope that his passport is widely accepted someday. I mean, listen, it, it wasn't so long ago. Well, kind of is long ago now, but I used to travel on my World Service Authority passport, which was about as valid, frankly, as as the whatever guy's passport is. And I gained entrance and exit from, let me see, Honduras, Costa Rica, Peru, um, French Polynesia, and I'm missing some other place. Did I use it in Iceland? I don't, I'll have to check the passport and see what they stamped it. And I was turned away, uh, you know, rather unpleasantly in um, Switzerland. They sent me to the back of the line and Rhodesia, was Rhodesia at the time. They sent me to the back of the line like a like a bad little boy, you know, go to the end of the Frank line. Right sir. <laughs> right. And and in Egypt, uh, with my World Service 30 passport, I would have been accepted, uh, except for the fact that somebody was using one and assassinated their ambassador to someplace the week before. And of course, they're all on red alert. Watch for people that are trying to try to enter with this. And um you know, this was a time that I was really feeling my oats and being taken into a back office in Egypt. Uh, it's risky, you know, Doug. It, it is risky, I would say. Uh, but uh, hmm. it wasn't Egypt. Wait a minute. It was Morocco. That's where it was. It wasn't in Egypt. I've got to check the stamps in my passport because you've been to all these places so many times. What happened? Was it this country or that country? Anyway, it was another Arab country and it was Morocco. And the reason I remember it was Morocco and it was the same drill was I, and I do remember this in particular because I had to speak French with the guy. And, uh, you know, my French was pretty passable then, semi-passable now. And we were, so I did what you always do when you confront a government official. And he said, he said, this passport, this is all in French. He says, this passport's no good here. And I looked at him and I said, well, 
what am I supposed to do? You know, like he's got to solve the problem for me. Exactly. And it was wonderful because he, you could tell the French were being, were there because he gave a perfect Gallic shrug. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so took out my American passport and went back to the line and so forth. But uh, anyway, anyway, God bless uh, whatever that guy's name that fooled the Paraguayans. Yeah, good for him. And the last thing that I got that happened today was this is the day that Jefferson Davis died mm. in 1889. And <clears throat> I, I don't think this will get us banned from YouTube saying that uh, I'm not going to say that I'm a fan of Jefferson Davis, but I think it's very, very sad, very, very unfortunate that the uh, story of uh, the war between the states and Jefferson Davis and all this type of thing, it's uh, been mythologized and we only hear one side of the story, South bad, South evil, you know, North good, Lincoln good. And I don't think Lincoln was good, frankly. When you set aside the, it seems like that's a bad start, isn't it? What is? When you said it, when he set aside the Constitution, it seemed like that alone would uh, uh, be set a bad precedent for his reputation and name. But it doesn't seem to have stuck with him. No, people forget about the fact that Lincoln locked up hundreds of newspaper editors and reporters and people that were not actively supporting or non-supporting. Uh, his invasion of, of the South. And uh, a couple of miscellaneous observations about, about Jefferson Davis. It's that um, he was indicted for treason after the war. He wanted to continue the war after Robert E. Lee surrendered at Appomattox. But uh, that was Lee. And the major army of the South that surrendered then. But Davis didn't want to surrender. He wanted to go across the Mississippi and uh, still have a Southern country and keep it going. Anyway, uh, he was arrested. He didn't, he never got that far. He was arrested in someplace in Georgia, I think. And they imprisoned him for two years under very harsh, unnecessarily harsh circumstances with leg irons and in a damp dungeon, it was it was almost like torture. Uh, actually, it was, and uh, he was indicted for treason, but he was never tried for treason. Although Jefferson Davis wanted them to try him for treason, because he could have presented the case for the fact that the secession was legal under the Constitution; it was legitimate, and. Uh, but they didn't, they didn't want it to happen because uh, a lot of people in the aftermath of the war thought, you know, this was, this was pointless slaughter of 700,000 people for nothing. And the South should have been able to go. Of course, the South never really had a, had a prayer. I mean, they won the first battle, the Battle of Bull Run. But Jefferson Davis made a big mistake when, um, when, uh, the way it worked was that uh, after South Carolina and a few other, state, other states seceded, um, Lincoln 
mobilize the Northern Army. You know, so put together 100,000 men. It was a very small army before that. Uh, and when Virginia and a few other states saw what was going on, this major army being built up by people in the North, they seceded too. That's how it really kind of started. And then uh, the, um, the South wanted, wanted all of the U.S. forts in the South. Well, one that was a holdout was on an island, Fort Sumter. And uh, the big mistake that Jefferson Davis made was having attacked Fort Sumter, which was ridiculous because there were only like 30 or 40 Union soldiers on it. And just just leave them alone until they go away. I mean, but, you know, you launch cannonballs and then, you know, there's old glory up there and all the chimpanzees start hooting and panting. So Fort Sumter and the attack on Fort Sumter, which was, I guess Jefferson Davis thought it was symbolic, you know, get out of our land. Okay, I understand that. But uh, for the South to secede, it was impossible because population-wise, the uh, South with white men, because it was war fought mainly by white men, they were outnumbered four to one. So that's those aren't odds that you like. And they had didn't have serious railroads to transport goods. They didn't have any serious foundries. They didn't have any shipbuilding facilities that were serious. They didn't have any... I mean, it was an agricultural society, basically. Compared so, to the industrialized North, right? They didn't have a prayer from every point of view, but they held out for for four years. So it's too bad. But, you know, I blame this on Lincoln because, and people say, well, he fought to make men free. This is not true at all. I mean, it's well known and documented that Lincoln was not a fan of black people. And his ideal solution was to ship them back to Africa. And that's what Liberia and Sierra Leone were all about. They were black colonies from... So anyway, uh, so Lincoln uh, was responsible for this total and unnecessary disaster. You say, well, wait a minute. Aren't we better off that the South stayed part of the U.S.? Well, yeah, in some ways, maybe. But in other ways, maybe it would have been better if the U.S. had remained 13 separate independent colonies. I mean, you can write all kinds of alternate history about this. And then what, what would have happened to the, with the conquest of the, the West and our stealing land from the Indians. This is another neo-colonialist type of thing that you got to get into. Who's right? Who's wrong? You know, it's, uh, anyway, it was, it wasn't a civil war. It was a war of secession, which was, and it, it wasn't about slavery. Yes, people, a lot of people in the South were really pro-slavery and a lot of people in the North were really anti-slavery. Okay, fine. That's understandable. Philosophical issue. You know, they didn't have a meeting of minds there, generally speaking. But what the war, the Civil War was really about was that the South was basically paying all the, because remember back then, the U.S. government's source of income 
was excise taxes and import duties. That was basically it. And all the import duties uh, were, were, were being paid uh, by the South who were importing industrial things from Europe, which were higher quality and lower cost than the stuff in the North. So I think three quarters of the income of the US government, I have to check that number if it's true, were being paid courtesy of the South importing things at high cost. That, that was one thing. And the other thing was, is that the South had rough parity in the uh, Congress, the House and the Senate with the North. But as these new states and territories were being incorporated, question is, will they be a free state or a slave state? Well, if they became a so-called free state, then, you know, the South would be overwhelmed politically and so forth. Anyway, this whole slavery thing is, is basically a tempest in a teapot because the last major country to have um, illegalized slavery, which of course should never have existed anyway, uh, but that's another story about slavery, good or bad. I mean, you got to have these discussions. I mean, everybody who makes these assumptions, I mean, yeah, I think it's bad, but I think you ought to discuss why is it bad and what's the history of it. Anyway, Brazil in 1888 was the last major country to illegalize slavery. And I got something for you that I'll bet you not one person in 10,000, 100,000 uh, are aware of. Uh, the last country on earth to illegalize slavery was Mauritania in 1985. Slavery was in Mauritania. And I happened to have been in Mauritania a, a few years ago. And yes, it's illegal, but it's pretty obvious that the people that, I mean, the black people that are in the Arab part of Mauritania, the Southern parts, mostly, mostly black, but it's an Arab country, basically. I mean, they're basically kind of like, you know, they're slaves, but they're being paid. And, you know, it's in 1985. This is an amazing number. So it would have disappeared in the South because it was uneconomic. That's one of the things that uh, I think I told you that I'm reading Safe Dean's book, um, Principles of Economics with my son. And he makes a clear case that, you know, prosperity eliminates basically through economics, through the development of civilization, uh, slavery doesn't work. And so it naturally is going to go away. Like it's naturally going to disappear because it's disadvantageous to all participants, including the slave owners. Like it becomes a liability, not an asset. And that was happening in the, in the, in the United States, even at that time period, right? It was starting to become more expensive than it was worth. And it would have worked itself out. Yeah, it would have. And of course, what would have happened to the slaves in the South? Because the North didn't want all these black people emigrating. And the Southerners, I don't, I don't know how it would have worked out, frankly. But, uh, well, you know, history has got a logic of its own or an illogic of its own, whatever happens. The illogic. Yes, and so much of what we know about history is revisionist history. It's a story that you can tell yourself. I mean, it's nice for Americans to believe, oh, we did something wrong. With slavery, it was a mistake. It was a stain on our country. This is the the narrative that I remember from middle school. But we righted the wrong. We fixed it. We addressed it. And you know, we're on the side of the right and of the righteous. I mean, not the right. 
And it's um, that narrative arc makes everyone feel good about where they're going. Yeah, and as a result, we have a new, I guess it is an official national holiday on a par with the 4th of July, the 6th, Juneteenth in 1619 when the first slave was brought over. I mean, these idiots, they don't realize that every single, I think, I think I'm correct in saying this, every single other country in the world has a history of slavery. So why does the U.S. have to be the one that celebrates Juneteenth? Yeah, and I mean, my my uh, relatives came over as indentured servants. I don't know. I mean, that's pretty close, isn't it? Yeah, pretty close. Yeah, it was just for a period it's of time. Temporary, yeah. But, yeah, but I mean, traditionally, starting in the days of the Roman Empire and before, I mean, slaves could buy their own way out of, you know, by... So... It's it's all it's all crazy. Well, it, it's it's one of the disadvantages of living here on the planet of the apes, quite frankly. <laughs> but it is does make for entertainment. It does make it for entertaining. Yeah. Okay. And, and we just hope that we can maintain ourselves in a position where, for us, it's kind of free entertainment to some degree. Just means it needs to be arm's length. Arm's length entertainment, right? <laughs> I, I just don't want to get involved in. The, in the problems with all these hooting and panting people that uh no no it's not gonna work for us if we can no, avoid it, it all right well i think we'll wrap it up there today doug uh next time we talk we'll have get an update on what you're hearing in buenos aires yeah and hopefully there will be some questions or reactions or arguments or whatever from those who listen to us and it'll be the subject for for more conversation exactly all right. Thanks very much, everybody. Thanks, Doug. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Matt.